This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast. G'day, I'm Jerry Cashman. Normally, I'm to be found behind the scenes running the technology at ASPE. This week, I'm your host. We, like the rest of the world, are thinking a lot about the current global pandemic. And in this episode, we host discussions with three prominent experts, Professor Raina McIntyre, Dr. Robert Glasser, and Dr. Anna Powles. First, Peter Jennings, Executive Director of ASPE, speaks with Professor Raina McIntyre. Hi, I'm Peter Jennings, and this is ASPE's podcast, Policy, Guns and Money. Today, I'm talking to Professor Raina McIntyre, who is the National Health and Medical Research Council's Principal Research Fellow and Professor of Global Biosecurity. She heads the biosecurity program at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales, which conducts research in epidemiology, vaccinology, bioterrorism prevention, mathematical modelling, public health and clinical trials in infectious diseases. Rana's work falls into four areas. Firstly, personal protective equipment. Secondly, vaccinology. Third, epidemic response and emergency infectious diseases. And four, biosecurity. Hardly surprisingly, I'm going to be talking to Rainer about uh, the coronavirus. Great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on to um, Aspie's podcast. Um, I wanted to start by asking you about the comments that uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison made uh, this morning. We're talking uh, on uh, Wednesday, the 18th of March. The Prime Minister's made a number of uh, new additions to the Australian government approach to dealing with the virus. And the first one is that he's um, given a warning to Australians not to travel abroad. What's your reaction to that, Raina? I think that's very sensible advice. I think people need to get mentally prepared for changes in their lives and particularly if they're travelling to North America or Europe, it's, you know, the situation is not good over there and um, it's likely you could get stuck over there and unable to come back. And you know, the, actually most of the cases we're seeing now are people who've travelled to the U- United States. So I think it's sensible advice. And domestic travel, I mean, there the balance of risk seems to be different. The advice is that it's still uh, low risk to do that. Would, would you agree with that assessment? Yes, it's lower risk than international travel, but we're still seeing quite a lot of cases domestically. We've got people arriving from other countries who are taking domestic flights, and we have had confirmed instances of people who are inf- infectious on domestic flights. So... I think airports and flying in general is carries some risk. And, uh, you know, we need to be looking at what is essential travel and what is non-essential travel and what mm. can be done virtually. Are you going to be travelling yourself in coming weeks? No, I've cancelled all my travel plans, domestic and international, and I'm not accepting any invitations that involve domestic travel. Uh, we've done the same at, uh, at ASPE. Um, the the Prime Minister then uh, talked about recommending against uh, indoor gatherings of more than 100 people, which are now banned as Australia has declared a biosecurity emergency. Again, what, what's your uh, what's your sort of reactions to that? I think that's uh, a sensible strategy. You know, the, basically everything we do to reduce frequent contact between lots of people will reduce transmission. It's part of the social distancing strategy, so everything we do will help. For me, the the thing that was um, somewhat jarring about the PM's comments this morning is um, clearly the the cabinet has taken a decision to say we're going to keep Australia running the the machinery of government 
uh, and the economy as far as possible is going to tick over. So in Canberra, uh, for example, we have you know large bureaucracies which are continuing to function, where you know literally thousands of people will be gathering together in uh, office accommodation, where often that type of um, personal separation, the 1.5 meters that we're uh, encouraged to maintain in terms of distance between people, um, modern office. Offices are not designed to really support that type of uh, distancing. What's a sensible way to think about how to manage this balance between, on the one hand, saying, uh, well, your social meeting that might take place on an evening is is no longer something that should happen, but it's perfectly acceptable that you should turn up to work with uh, five or 600 other people into a single building? So I think there's there's a difference between um, the risk management strategies that are mandated by government and what organisations are taking into their own hands. And there's a lot of that going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of big corporations are um, instructing people to work from home where possible. And there are other corporations that are sending people home for two weeks yeah. because there's been a case in the building. So um, I think... In the absence of more detailed mandates about lockdowns, etc., um, people will make their own decisions for their own circumstances. Do you think that's um, good enough at this point, or should we be looking to government to provide more definitive advice about um, how to manage those types of office situations? The epidemic curve is very much on the upward trajectory. Um, things are going to get worse very quickly because the doubling time of the epidemic is four to six days. So we will see cases doubling in that kind of time frame. The principles of epidemic control are that you, you know, the interventions work best and most effectively the earlier you implement them. And it's much more difficult to control when things get, epidemics get very large. But you do have to make that balance between um, trying to keep business as usual running and uh, trying to manage the public health risk. I think they've cited the example of Singapore that kept schools open but still managed to control the epidemic. Yeah. But that's that's as much as I can comment. Sure. Things will change quickly, though, I guess, is the message. So what is appropriate guidance on Wednesday the 18th may be um, well out of date by the time we get to Wednesday next week, for example. That's right. What's your assessment, Rainer, of the, the global path the virus is going to take over the next six months or so? So we're seeing things coming under control in Asia. Countries like South Korea, Japan have brought things under control. Um, Now Europe is the epicenter and things are really uh, on the upward trajectory there. And uh, it's obviously the nature of the EU makes epidemic control quite difficult because it's a borderless um, principle. And you do need border control to control these epidemics. And the United States as well is on an upward trajectory We may see different parts of the world surging in cases at different times. And, of course, there's always a risk of a second wave because even in China, only less than 1% of the population there were infected. Mm. So um, as business opens up there, um, there's a possibility of other epidemics taking off. So I I wanted to ask you about that. I, I mean, on the face of it, seeing a lot of reporting relating to China, the, the, the mood would seem to suggest that Beijing's strategies worked um, and we now see um, lots of economic indicators that the economy is on the uptick, people are going back to work, um, fuel is being consumed more, people are travelling more. 
But um, what what confidence can we have that that's the end of the story and that we won't simply see uh, a similar outbreak of the virus um, in a different town, perhaps, which is yet to have been a centre of uh, you know significant um, outbreak to date. Yeah, I mean, that's always possible. Um, And until we have a reasonably effective vaccine, that possibility will always be there. When we can vaccinate people and protect them, then that's when we really have it under control. Yes. So until then, we have to rely on, you know, the the non-pharmaceutical measures that we've been using to try and minimise the um, impact. Next question I had, Rana, was about uh, a couple of countries much closer to Australia where we have yet to see... Um, significant indications or, or reporting um, about COVID-19, Indonesia and PNG, um, both present different um, problems. Uh, Indonesia, a country now of 240 million people, uh, Papua New Guinea, 9 million um, at a much lower level of uh, development, um, fairly um, uh, patchy quality of healthcare through the two countries. What's your estimate about the the potential for um, COVID-19 to uh, become a major problem in those jurisdictions? Um, And why would you say is it the case that we've not yet seen significant um, indications of, um, of the virus so far? Reporting of cases is a function of the strength of the health system, the ability to do disease surveillance and the ability to test at scale. Um, Indonesia has only reported less than 200 cases so far and probably has more capacity for surveillance and testing than Papua New Guinea. Um, We know that Papua New Guinea has had not a very strong ability for public health surveillance for a long time, even for diseases like measles. So that's a concern in that you may not be getting reports at all because it's just not being detected. So I guess that's part, it's important for us as part of our strategy to also support countries and their neighbours who are, um, you know, it's important that disease is controlled everywhere or it's a problem for yes. everyone. Yes, indeed. Uh, turning to Australia and, and just finally, Raina, what, what's the best and worst projections for Australia as we move into uh, winter? So the best case scenario is that, you know, by um, implementing all the social distancing measures that we've done and continuing to trace all contacts of cases and quarantine them and also by isolating every person who's sick and hopefully by expanding testing capacity so we're not just testing only people with symptoms, we may see that uh, we can cope within our health system and not be overloaded um, and that we can hold, hold things at bay until we're able to vaccinate people. But the worst-case scenario is that um, transmission really takes off and we lose control of the situation and we end up with a large proportion of the population infected and the health system severely impacted, unable to deal with the load um, that's required. It's a very striking case of the impact that public policy can have on on the projection of a disease, isn't it? I mean, uh, we we face either an Italian type of uh, disaster or perhaps a more measured um, outcome which is manageable, but um, only if government manages to get the policy settings right. Yeah. What advice do you have for Australians that might um, uh, find themselves having to plan their own responses at this stage? I think on a personal level, um, just be mindful that you know transmission is um, related to the amount of contact you have with other people, whether you travel 
and that the transmission modes are respiratory and through contact, so maintaining meticulous personal hygiene, um, hand hygiene particularly, being aware of frequently touched surfaces that you think you're touching and then touch your face, you are at risk of infecting yourself. Um, and um, you know, trying to maintain spatial separation. If you live in a household with somebody who's older or has chronic illness of some kind, be really careful about bringing infection home. And I think people just have to get into that mindset of having to make changes in at a personal level of how we live and work. Um, if you can work from home, work from home. Mm-hmm. And if you have any kind of symptoms, don't go to work and don't send your children to school. Rana, it's been a pleasure to talk to you about a, a difficult subject, but thank you for your insights. Uh, is there a question that I have failed to ask you that I should have asked you? We need to think about our essential first responders, which includes police, who are probably one of the most vulnerable because, the, you know, office workers can work from home, but police have to be out there in the front line. We, we you know, we're aware of the healthcare workers also being very important um, and the risks that they face, but very few people think about police and they um, are at risk and need to be a high priority for PPE and um, need to be thinking about ways that they can protect their workforce and minimise the risk. Yes, I think that's a very good um, a very good point. Uh, do we have adequate uh, personal protective equipment standards for first responders that that can be rolled out effectively at this time, or are we sort of lagging in terms of what the police and um, other emergency services uh, really need to deal with this situation? So I think we um, need to be thinking about what kind of stockpiling we need to protect all of our um, essential first responders. And, um, you know, think, think about what kind of tasks can be reprioritized, um, to reduce exposure and make sure that we have adequate capacity if there's issues of law and order that, um, result from an uncontrolled epidemic. And, and you're, you're talking about that in the context of sort of winter being the, the, the high point that there is still some time left, as it were, to, develop appropriate stockpiles. I, I imagine we're talking about equipment which is in very high demand uh, globally at the moment. So do we have the capacity to develop those stockpiles right now? So I think the government's doing the best it, it can and it has yeah. done pretty well really to procure extra stocks of PPE, but there's a global shortage, you know, mm. and unless and this is being faced by every country that's having a current epidemic where healthcare workers don't have enough PPE. One thing that could come out of this is actually looking at our domestic manufacturing capacity yes. and its supply chains that are really run, you know, that's, that's been what's exposed the most, our incredible reliance on globalised supply chains and how vulnerable we are without those things. And not just PPE, but essential medicines, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I think we need to seriously be reflecting on what things we can be self-sustaining in in Australia. I agree. I think we'll look back at this time and say this was the high point of just-in-time and that we're going to have to look much harder at those things that we require from a, a national security perspective to be able to source ourselves. Yeah. Rainer, it's been a delight talking to you. I'm, I'm sure you've got many other interviews that you've got to do today, but thank you for uh, finding the time to no talk worries, to us. No worries. Okay. Thanks, Thanks again. Dr. Robert Glasser is a visiting fellow at ASPE. Formerly, he was the Special Representative of the Secretary-General for Disaster Risk Reduction and Head of the United Nations International Strategy for Disaster Reduction. He's speaking here with Michael Shoebridge, Director of Defence Strategy.
at Aspen. Robert, it's wonderful to have a, a chance to talk to you uh, about the rolling set of events that's the coronavirus and various government's responses. I thought we could just start with, uh, here in Australia, we feel like we're in the middle of things, but it's probably useful to take a moment and look out at the world and say, are there any lessons for how Australia is responding uh, internationally? Yeah, I think we have... Uh, fortunately, we have the benefit of China's recent experience and experience of other countries to uh, to help design our own response. And one of the key lessons is that with this virus, if you wait until the numbers of infected people is too large, is large, or um, at a level that would ordinarily you ordinarily worry about. Then and, and you wait till that point to implement your response, you've missed the opportunity to prevent a much wider uh, spread of the virus because mm -hmm. the virus will be in many different parts of the country and it'll be more challenging. To well, and that's, isn't that for two reasons? One, not everybody has the virus, who has the virus has symptoms so they don't seek testing. And also any testing is only reaching a part of the community anyway. Uh, in, in Australia's case, I get the feeling we have rather limited testing capacity around. So any yep. reported diagnosed case number is likely to be quite underreported uh, compared with the actual number of infected right. people. You have over 80% of the cases are very mild and some of those, as you said, maybe people will not even have symptoms but still be shedding virus. So that leads us to underestimate the number. And secondly, the amount of testing we're doing to check that. If we don't test, we don't know. And there are many countries, the US in particular, has been very slow to test. And without testing, without finding people who are carrying the virus, you can't isolate them. Without doing that, then this virus spreads more rapidly. You get this big spike in infections, which overwhelms hospitals and the healthcare system. So looking at, at other countries, obviously there's the big example of China. Uh, to my mind, they started extremely poorly and in fact probably inflicted more of this problem on the globe by their early um, repression and control of rumours rather than action to control the virus. But since they entered their uh, fairly radical lockdown period, they seem to have uh, slowed the spread very impressively. And then uh, other countries that, that seem to be now taking fairly effective responses uh, would include Singapore and South Korea. Again, South Korea from a slow start. Yes, I think well, the Chinese government moved very uh, quickly once this was visible uh, a visible problem uh, even globally. And they did lock down. An un it's an unprecedented lockdown, I think, uh, something like 40 to 50, 60 million people. So they were able to slow the spread after a huge number of cases, tens of thousands of cases um, and deaths. Uh, but yes, they were able to get a handle on it. And it wasn't, it was truly draconian measures that enabled them to do that measures that we're now starting to see actually rolled out in other countries. In uh, northern Italy, actually, all of the country is shut down in many respects. In Los Angeles, I just uh, heard today, um, the governor has announced that people over 65 need to remain in their homes, not going out, isolated, essentially. So we'll see how effectively those uh, 
those measures are uh, implemented, it's a bit more challenging in our societies and Western societies, I think. I suppose the lesson I'd take from Italy is they've now put these more extreme lockdown measures in place, but too late because I think they fell into the trap you spoke of earlier, that they were relying on reported numbers and they didn't realise the galloping true number. And it's harder to get to slow the horse down after it's left the barn than acting earlier. Yeah, I've seen some interesting analysis that suggests if there's one death, if the case fatality rate is, say, uh, 2%, if there's one death, if you work backwards to the point that person was infected, it meant there were probably, you know, many, many, many cases. So the fact that there's one death in a country suggests that there are hundreds potentially. And then if you look at each of the peop- other people who might be infected right. and their opportunity to spread to a wider population, it's a lot bigger, a much bigger number. So in, in simple terms for the Australian response, the lesson seems to be put in place measures now that at this moment in time seem uh, out of proportion with the problem because in a short period of time, measures that look disproportionately large will start to look either like just in time or not enough. Yeah, absolutely. That is the overriding lesson is you have to act quickly and uh, on a large scale to prevent what uh, currently seems like a small outbreak from becoming a really huge problem. And I wonder if uh, there's a flip needed on the mindset around the economy and public health, because the kind of approach you see perhaps here in Australia but elsewhere is let's minimise the economic impact and moderate the public health measures as a result. I wonder if the, the, the thinking with what we've just talked about is... Uh, if you maximise the public health response, you are actually going to protect your economic viability in the medium term. Yeah, it's short-term thinking that is based on a business-as-usual environment. That's an approach that politically seems to work when it's a normal time, but we're in an unprecedented moment right now. And that's a strategy that is a recipe for failure if you consider that short-term trade-off between the economy and public health as an issue. Mm. In fact, it is the best response for the economy is to be rigorous in your interventions and on a large scale now rather than waiting. Mm. Because you know, we've talked about in, in national security, we've had that saying that a strong economy is the best way of achieving strong national security. But there's an even earlier point, isn't there, which is a healthy population is the best way of achieving a a healthy economy. Uh, I I wonder, the Australian government has already demonstrated it can take decisive big steps ahead of the curve. It did it right at the start of the coronavirus pandemic with the travel bans. So, uh, and the lesson there is that decision looked radical and now it looks absolutely proportionate And it's a pity it hasn't been followed by other equally large measures. Yes. And we see now, in fact, countries are going further. They're closing their borders. Mm. They're not just closing their borders with other countries like uh, Austria closing borders with Germany, uh, Switzerland and so on. But they're also 
shutting down travel within their countries between whether it's people over 65 or older or mm. people in particular places where there are outbreaks. Yes. So yes, that's yeah. what's necessary to yeah. get a handle. I wonder, um, turning now to, and what is the scientific and medical response? So rather than talking about treatment um, now and triage and all of those problems of radically increasing capacity at a time you can't radically increase the capacity of the medical profession. Um, what is happening internationally with research on the virus and vaccine development? Because this is a bit of an underdone story uh, about the level of cooperation that's happening. Yeah, I think there has been a lot of criticism in the media about a lack of a of political leadership at the global level um, criticism of the U.S. president and, and others for not coming together at a global level to combat this unprecedented public health, global public health emergency. Um, but I know there's a lot of very good work and cooperation, both at the bureaucratic level across governments and at the level of the, certainly the science and uh, science community and on vaccine development, on sharing data, sharing genetic data on the virus, and that's happened very early on, actually, in this crisis. Um, the problem is it still takes significant amount of time to develop vaccines. It's months. And, you know, I've seen estimates ranging from 10 months to 12 months before we have a vaccine that can be distributed. So it's developing the vaccine, then it's producing it in large quantities, and then distributing, distributing it. it. Yeah. And as usual, yeah. less developed countries will likely be at the end of the queue in receiving those uh, which I think is a really important public policy issue. You know, to me, uh, Australia needs to think, how do we come out of this? And how do we come out of this, not just domestically, but with our regional partnerships and relationships? So I know it's hard to think beyond our own well-being in this time. But uh, to me, that critical test of as vaccines become available, how do we have the will to help them become available in the developing world as well as in the wealthy world? Yeah. That will be a test for how our world develops. And if we approach that properly, we can help bring back some of the global cooperation that we aren't seeing at this time. I think there are two areas where um, we need to exercise more leadership. One is at that level, of, at the regional, particularly our regional level for us, but globally as well, and supporting those efforts. And that will, hopefully, we will step up. We already do support regional efforts on pandemic preparedness. Mm through the, aid, the Australian aid program. But we recently helped um, Samoa out with, uh, with a measles outbreak. That's um, right. A bit okay. undersung, but, but it was extremely effective. Yes. So there's that level. The other level that's being ignored or, or is, is being under, um, under-supported, I think, is at the community level. Mm. Generally in disasters, communities support each other. You have most of the firefighters in our recent bushfires were community volunteers. volunteers neighbors helping neighbors put out fires, sheltering members of the community who are displaced. In this disaster, the message being sent is the exact opposite. With social distancing, you know, you're on your own in your house, creating a real sense of isolation in the Australian public when there is still an important role for communities in supporting. Well, absolutely. Other. And in fact, helping people cope with formal social isolation 
uh, is actually a challenge to everybody as we are in our homes. How can we reach out however we can, uh, electronically or with a phone call, to keep that sense of cohesion? As we saw that build um, with the bushfire crisis, we don't want to lose that with this more dangerous crisis. Yes, and, and isolation is critical, but it doesn't have to be social isolation. It doesn't have to be... No. Yeah. You're out of touch. Your neighbors aren't dropping off food to help you if you run out of things and, and the like. It's a, I think it's an important gap that we need to fill. Yes. Well, Robert, this won't be the last time we talk, although next time we talk, it may be virtual. Uh, but thank you uh, for your knowledge and for your insights on this. Thanks very much, Robert. Thanks, Michael. Great. Dr. Anna Powles is a senior lecturer in security studies at Massey University. Jen Fairley spoke to Dr. Powell's on the impact of COVID-19 on our near neighbours in the Pacific. So I think there's only really one topic that's at the front of everyone's minds right now, and that's COVID-19 or coronavirus. Um, it seems to be absolutely dominating the news cycle here in Australia. We're hearing a lot about what's going on here, as well as in Europe and the US. However, I'm really interested in having a chat today about how coronavirus will unfold across the Pacific. We've seen cases rising quite fast in Australia and New Zealand's adopted some quite drastic measures to halt the spread, but for the most part, the Pacific's largely been spared so far. We did see the first confirmed case a few days ago. What's your assessment of the effect coronavirus will have on the Pacific? Okay, so uh, the total number uh, of, of confirmed cases now in the Pacific is eight. So there's five in Guam and, uh, and three in French Polynesia. Mm. In Tahiti, so the numbers are still low, but we we have to see, um to consider those numbers against the fact that the health sectors across the Pacific are all often already stressed. Uh, a number of Pacific countries don't have that um, that critical care um, capability as well, and so when we when we consider how, for instance, the uh, measles epidemic. Uh, devastated Samoa in, in late last year with 83 deaths, most of whom were infants, and the strain that that placed on on Samoa's health sector. Uh, we we need to appreciate the fact that the Pacific Island countries are already facing critical issues across the medical treatment facilities and their staff, as has been noted elsewhere. And if we think about what is needed in order to be able to to uh, respond to COVID-19 and to in an effective way, often that those basic sort of logistical questions are still still need to be asked. So th- these are really big questions. There's already limited access to to quality healthcare services. Um, you know, on average, 5.9% of the GDP of Pacific Island countries is allocated to health spending, but often how that plays out uh, in in real terms is, is very slight. And we're talking about, you know, things like even basic care, you know, soap and, and so forth. It's a significant question for the Pacific, and that is why they really have bolted the doors uh, in many respects in terms of putting in place strong measures to to prevent the potential spread of it uh, through through the region. And do you think that, so you talked about the recent measles outbreak, do you think that that has made the Pacific um, better prepared than elsewhere because they're quite alert to the detrimental effects that outbreaks like this can have? Or do you think it means that the health sector there is spread quite thin right now? Well, I think the health sector, I mean, the, the measles epidemic just happened in, in late last year, so there hasn't been that time, but it certainly has 
created a significant amount of awareness, particularly in Samoa. Um, and also, importantly, in, in New Zealand as well. I mean, Samoa still remembers very well the impact of the 1918 Spanish flu. And there been there were some understandable and, and, and right parallels drawn between the spread of measles from New Zealand last year and the tragic decisions made by New Zealand in 1918, which led to the Spanish flu devastating so much of the Samoa population then. So... Yes, there is that there. There is that awareness, but perhaps there hasn't been. Uh, there certainly hasn't been enough spending in the, in across the health budget. If we think about concerns that were raised around Zika, um, as well as others, it's interesting to note, for instance, that in the Boy Declaration um, Action Plan, so in the Boy Declaration on Regional Security, which was launched in 2018, it talks about human security as one of the sort of the key challenges and sort of transnational challenges that the Pacific faces and the need for collective response to that. In the Boy Declaration the Action Plan, which was which was recently released last year, um, it talks about non-communicable diseases, but doesn't talk about uh, pandemic responses, for instance. So there's, there's a tension here in terms of whether or not these kind of health issues and health security issues have been sufficiently elevated, um, given the vulnerabilities across the, the the health sectors in the region, and so we, what we're seeing here is a little bit of attention too in terms of how how countries are responding to it. Um, whether, as for instance, Papua New Guinea has elevated it to a national security issue, other states such as Nauru have have um, launched state of emergency in order to be able to enact the the National Disaster um, Management Act, and so it's become a sort of a disaster issue. So there's there are some interesting sort of tension points and just distinctions and differences between how countries are responding to it. As of yet, we're not seeing a regional level response, though. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. I was wondering if there's a role for an organisation like the PIF or perhaps some other sub-regional groups in coordinating this response because I had it wasn't quite aware that there'd been such um, diverse approaches taken so far. Do you think that there's a particularly difficult containment challenge in the Pacific and therefore a regional organisation would be probably best placed to try and contain the challenge here? I think it's a, it would be... A huge challenge to expect for one organisation to be to be able to respond to this. I think what we could be potentially looking for is some um, guidance for uh, in terms of a collective response, uh, which is where the, the Pacific Islands Forum would be the key um, the key regional organisation to lead on. Um, with obviously with the with the um, the FPC, the Pacific Community having a critical role in this as well. But the challenge is, obviously, is that we're talking about a large number of countries and territories with different needs and and different challenges, um, and how you formulate a a regional response would be extremely difficult. And if we think about how other regions or other countries within other regions have responded, we're not really seeing regional responses as such. We're seeing individual state responses, mm. um, and that's part, that's not surprising. And I think also given the distance between Pacific countries, there is that you know there is a degree of where isolation is is a is is a benefit here in some respects, but but also some very real challenges in terms of resources because ultimately where are those resources are going to come from and certainly in Australia and New Zealand um, are jointly funding the World Health Organization's Pacific Response Plan that's around a million but that's actually not a lot actually if you, if we if we consider um, the the needs on the ground and and the long term needs that are going to exist there. But it is certainly a start. So this is something where Australia and, and New Zealand, and New Zealand has been particularly active mm. um, with this respect. 
um, where Australia and New Zealand really do need to step up. Sorry, apologise for using the no, phrase. No. <laughs> um, step up, and because they are, as they're called, gateway countries to the Pacific, and and they play a critical role. New Zealand, particularly, has 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 um, sought to do so. Has been very clear in its messaging. One of your other areas of interest is the security sector in the Pacific. Are there broader security implications for the spread of coronavirus there? Well, um, certainly are in in a number of ways, and that's a really interesting question. I think for if we consider the fact that so when PNG elevated when the National Security Council met and they elevated COVID nineteen from a health issue to a national security issue, one of the things that they did was to actually then put the Papua New Guinea Defence Force on alert. Mm. So we have two we have two different um, potential implications here. One is what would happen if COVID-19 spread through the defence and police forces, noting that not all Pacific countries have, have defence forces, but if they spread through the security services, for instance. And I'm thinking particularly if if, if the uh, defence and security services and security sectors were disabled and countries were required to respond to, for instance, a national disaster, there would be some real, some gaps and real vacuums in terms of their response capabilities with respect to that. Then, of course, there's also you know potential law and order implications too. That's worst case, obviously worst case scenario. Mm. And then there's the, the other question too, in in terms of from a civil military and civil military policing perspective, is what is the role of, of the security sector in response to a pandemic type event like like COVID nineteen? And and in countries sometimes where those lines can be a little blurred. It does raise questions around what kind of role that security services would take. Where does that role end? Um, what are their responsibilities? And and where is that oversight as well? So there there's a number of different kind of consequences and implications for the security sectors in in the Pacific. But there's also some kind of broader kind of questions too around sort of the geopolitics of it as well too. Yeah, and I think that question about what the role of the security sector is something we're even still grappling with here in Australia. And it's really interesting you mentioned kind of geostrategic challenges that are also arising from this. Do you see any kind of geostrategic issues that are going to come out of the coronavirus in the Pacific? Well, I think that um, we already are seeing some. Um, we have seen China, for instance, try to shape the narrative uh, around coronavirus in, in in the region from very early on the on the crisis through uh, pressuring some Pacific states to not evacuate students, for instance, and also to moderate uh, government messaging as well. China has also been very proactive too, and there was a um, criticism in, in, in one of the uh, Australian media the other day about where China and New Zealand have filled the void, uh, whereas Australia hasn't. I think it was Pat Conroy who made a similar comment. Um, and China has been proactive. It has engaged and it has held meetings with Pacific Island countries uh, via the VTC uh, meetings uh, to talk about um, China's experience and how they can assist and support Pacific Island countries. But then there's some also interesting uh, messaging coming out too, um, where last week the head of the Chinese embassy task force in the Solomon Islands sent a, a public message to the Solomon Islands government asking the government to ease travel restrictions to allow their diplomats to travel to the country. And and the representative argued that uh, Solomon's restrictions had actually caused setbacks for, for Chinese diplomats and claimed that it was in the best interest of the Solomon Islands to ease the ban because if the current status continued, um, it could affect the local economy. So there's been some sort of direct kind of messaging in there as well. But also... Um, 
several days ago, Samoa's Prime Minister, uh, Tuilepa, in his address to Parliament, he made a number of comments about how the the principles of human rights in democratic countries, such as Samoa and New Zealand, um, actually dragged down and delayed the urgency of the work that must be done. And he suggested that China had had a head start um, because of its pragmatic communist system of governance, which had led it to being able to sort of introduce and produce quick successes in the control of the disease. And so where we're seeing these, these, these comparisons being made between uh, these two systems, as, as Prime Minister Tuilepa said, that the, the difference in response time between the two systems of governing meant a longer time for the disease to be brought under control in democratic societies. So this is kind of an ideological kind of bent to this debate as well, to this, this, this situation. And that's also a little concerning too. Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting to see some of those kind of ideological discussions and debates come out um, as a result of a health crisis like this. Um, so at this point, I probably want to just say thanks so much for your time today. I think it's been really interesting talking about this because I think this region is definitely one that hasn't got enough coverage here in Australia. So thank you for contributing. My pleasure, Jen. Thank thanks. you. That's all for this episode. Along with the rest of the country, we're making changes in the ways we engage with people. Our public events, workshops and masterclasses have been postponed for the near term, but we're stepping up our online and virtual engagements. You'll hear more quality guns and money more frequently as we settle into this new way of working. Now, even more than ever, we want your feedback. Please tweet us at ASPE underscore org and let us know how we're going. Thanks for joining us and stay safe. We'll be back next week.